Amen. As uh, Brother Todd was praying there just about the words that we were singing, it's, uh, we were singing that last song, just holy, holy, holy. I was just sharing with the boys that uh, Isaiah has the vision in the sixth chapter, and it says around, these, around the throne of God, day and night, there are these living creatures who keep calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And as we cry out these weary words, holy, 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 I was like, man, it's a reminder, we are not. That's not who we are. And so it's a cry of who God is, but it's also a desperation, I hope and pray of your heart. It's a cry of, to Jesus. Save us. You are holy. We are not. You came to rescue us. What hope. Thank you so much to those who are leading us in worship and just the beauty of these songs and the opportunity we have not only to sing but to disciple our children in this place as we sing and talk to them about the scriptures and the truth of God's word. And so um, I want to encourage you today, if you have your copy of God's word, make it to the 22nd chapter of Matthew as we continue to make our way through this gospel. We're going to be in verses 15 to 22, dealing with a topic that is, um, is just loaded with application, all right? The idea of Christ and culture. So how does Christ impact culture? What is it to be our response? How does it impact who we are as believers? So let's begin there, Christ and culture. It was January 1933. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you were alive then. But January 1933, a man by the name of Adolf Hitler came forward as the chancellor in Germany. Within a year and a half, he would be president of Germany. Hitler soon would begin this anti-Semitic, this anti-Jewish rhetoric that would intensify only as he became not only chancellor but also president. Soon, pastors and churches, men like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, would find themselves in the bullseye of Adolf Hitler. The church would gather together what they became known as the Confessing Church. And in 1934, the Confessing Church wrote this in their Barman Declaration, it's their allegiance first to Jesus Christ. As Hitler stands on the stage, this is what the Confessing Church in Germany declared. We repudiate the false teaching that the church can and must recognize yet other happenings and powers, personalities and truths, listen to this, as divine revelation alongside this one word of God. The declaration was this, for those who were part of the Confessing Church in Germany in 1934, that we have one leader and his name is Jesus. It is a reminder to us that we stand in that line here today in the United States of America declaring that we have one ultimate leader and his name is whom? Jesus. He is our leader. He is our king. The reality is that soon after this declaration was made that the, the seminary that Bonhoeffer worked for was closed and more and more, the confessing church became less willing to talk openly against Adolf Hitler. It was left with some ultimate opportunities of what might you do if you were living in Germany during that time, specifically as a pastor in one of the confessing churches. One opportunity was to rail back at Hitler and, and to go at him, but that was obviously detrimental and dangerous. The other opportunity was possibly to escape the culture, to get out. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually did that, coming to the United States of America. But soon after, he writes back, being here, I think, less than a month, that he realizes that he cannot leave his people, that he must return back to Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer will arrive back in Germany and begin for a period of years helping Jews escape out of Germany to safety. But in 1943, he was arrested. 
He's taken off to prison and into concentration camps. And within two years, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stands today as a reminder to us that opposing culture and opposing rulers and authorities can and will be costly. But the reminder is this, that our allegiance to Christ always comes first. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life and the truth of Matthew 22 today set before you and I a question of this. How do we respond to an unbelieving culture? Have you wrestled with that? You live in one. Like the reality of when Daniel writes the, in there, his book, being in Babylon, guess what? That's where you find in yourself. So the question is, how do you and I live in an unbelieving culture? How do we respond to an unbelieving culture? And I think one of two extremes is often the one that we gravitate toward. One is we rail against it. We just repudiate it. We come against it full force, tacking, blasting everything we can. The other temptation is just to embrace it because it's so dangerous and costly to come against it. But I think that Christ is going to show us today that there's another way. That there's a way that not just to simply come against the culture, not to embrace the culture, but to live in a place to realize that Christ can transform culture through grace and truth. Well, we might say it this way today, that you and I are called to encounter the culture with the gospel. To bring the truth of Christ into our culture, to not run against it, to not just simply yell at it, but simply to bring Christ and His truth into our culture. It was in his 1789 letter that Benjamin Franklin wrote the words that are so familiar to many of us. He said that, and I quote from his letter, the only two certainties in life are what? Death and taxes. It's interesting that death and taxes, because in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, the religious leaders will actually use death and taxes to try to trap Jesus. This week, we're just going to deal with taxes. And it's verses 15 to 22 or in the 22nd chapter as Matthew writes and tells us about this encounter with Jesus. So if you would, pick up with me and we're going to begin this first truth to us as we wrestle with Christ and culture. It's this, that our unbelieving hearts and culture scheme in their rejection against God. Our unbelieving hearts and our culture are constantly scheming, finding ways to come in opposition to God. So listen to how it unfolds. Beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Rodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. It's interesting. A lot's happening here. But I think it's important, right, to not miss Matthew's simple statement, Then. Then reminds us of what's just happened, Right? If you've been with us in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus' authority was called into question, right? Remember, this is Monday into Tuesday in the temple, right? Jesus is going to be put on the cross on Friday. So this is understanding the Holy Week. This is how things unfolded, Jesus' last week of his earthly life. And so here he is, he's in the temple. He's shared these three different parables, the one about the two sons, and then he had the parable of the tenants, and then he had the parable of the wedding feast as we came in the 22nd chapter. And he finished out that parable by saying, listen, for those who reject the Son, who don't respond to God's invitation to be forgiven through the Son, he says, well, I want you to know that they're going to be bound and thrown out in the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You might think hearing the truth from the Son of God about hell 
and eternal death and eternal suffering would cause them to wake up and pay attention. But the truth is, the text says they just miss it. Then, instead of responding, instead of hearing the gospel and repenting and believing, then they just knuckle up their fists, they bow out their chest. It says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Right? I mean, it's just this this danger, this this opposition to God. You see that. You hear the truth of the gospel. That there's a son that's come to rescue you. There's a long-suffering God who will forgive you. There's a God who welcomes prostitutes and tax collectors who are willing to repent. And yet they refuse this God. It's a reminder to Jesus, so we might need to hear fresh and new. Do not fear those who can destroy the body, but just fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. But nonetheless, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, notice what it does. They begin to plot. And here's their plot, how to entangle him. Depending upon your translation today, you may actually see the word there, trap. That's exactly what this imagery is behind the word entangle. The word entangle is the word that was used to catch animals in traps. That's their plan, right? They've come, they've got their nets, right? And they're going to throw their nets at Jesus from all these different angles to find some way to trap him and catch him. It's interesting, though, that who's involved in this. Look what it says again there back in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples. So the disciples here are the disciples of the Pharisees. Along with who, church? Who is that there? The Herodians. There's a lot unfolding here, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing who is willing to go to and work together to team up to try to destroy Jesus. So maybe to understand a little bit politically of the climate would help, right? Christ and culture today as we wrestle with this. First, there are people known as the zealots. All right, so on this one extreme, the zealots are those who think that you should take up arms to defend yourself. They are saying, you know what, guys? We need to go to war against Rome. And in fact, they will do that. They've already done it in, uh, I think it was... I want to say 6 AD. They've already done that. A man by the name of Judas, I think it's in Acts chapter 4, where that's actually referenced. And they tried to revolt, and and Rome crushed them, and right, they were killed. But there's always this ongoing sense of which we've got to rise up against the government. We need to take arms and take power back in our own hands against Rome. The Pharisees somewhat lean that direction, right? But that's not where they are. They're not totally in that camp of saying we need to revolt against Rome. On the other opposite end of the spectrum was the Herodians. The Herodians are, guess what, their very name comes, right, from Herod, right? And so they're, they're Herod, they're kings on the throne. He's benefiting from the tax that's being given. And so that guess what, if Herod benefits and they follow Herod, guess who else benefits? They do. Not only that, if Rome comes in and crushes the Jewish people, that means Herod likely will be disposed from the throne. And therefore, they're going to lose their sense of power, security. And so they are absolutely concerned about that. So it's crazy that people on the opposite ends of the spectrum culturally on how they view things are willing to come together. Why? To attack Jesus. You might say it's what we might know as a power play, right? I know we're not big hockey folks probably here, not many of you, right? But the reality is in hockey, there's what's called power plays. There's penalties and they have the offense in essence gets more people on one side. On one team has more people than the other team. Right. Sometimes you see it play out in other sports like hot or uh, soccer, right, that the team may be behind. And so they take their goalie out and put another person in the field. So they have more feet to go against. Right. More people in the field attacking. They're on a power play. The truth is you live in a culture right now where it probably feels like the culture is on a power play. 
right? Because let's just be honest, you live in a culture that's becoming more and more ungodly, and there's just more and more people that are in opposition to God and His truth. And sometimes you may find yourself amazed that people on this spectrum and this spectrum are willing to team up together, but whatever it takes to come against God and His Word. But I want to remind you and I in the midst of that is that the words of Philippians 2, not Philippians 2, Psalm 2, sorry, it says that God isn't shaking in His boots in heaven. It says that He who is in heaven laughs as He holds the nations in derision. God is laughing. The prophet Isaiah says the nations are like a drop in the bucket. It says the people are but grasshoppers. God is not threatened by the culture power play that's taking upon you. And so I want to encourage you today, if you are a child of God, do not fear. Do not fear. But the threat is real, guys. And so they're willing to do anything to set their traps. I want you to see these people are coming from all different angles in whatever they can to catch and trap Jesus. And here's their question. Look what it says. Again, look at verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is an epic question. All right? You have to understand, right, the culture is so divided on this, right? We've already heard a little bit about the Zealots and the Pharisees and the Rhodians. But the reality is, like, the Jewish people felt that paying a tax to the Romans was a sign of submission. But the Zealots, they thought that was like worship to pagan gods. So to do that, again, these are Jewish people, different groups of Jewish people, right? But the Zealots are like, man, if you do that, you are enslaved to the pagans, now consider, Jesus is in a trap here. We're going to get to it a little bit in a more in a moment. But think also about how this impacts him personally, right? Because you deal with the culture, right? And you deal with friends and people on social media and all that. But the reality is you also probably are experiencing tension in your own family and those closest to you. Think about who writes this gospel. What gospel are we in? Matthew. What was Matthew's former profession before coming to Christ? A tax collector. Guess who else is amongst the twelve? Simon the what? The zealot. Now, can you imagine road trips and Jesus like, hey, Matthew, Simon, why don't you guys room up together, right? I mean, like, Simon the zealot, like, they hate. Like, they're literally ready to kill tax collectors and people like Matthew. So you can imagine, as Jesus has to answer this question, the tension that's arising in that group. As people maybe stare at Matthew, as Simon stares at him, as they look at Jesus, like, Jesus, are you going to give in to them? Like the tension is real, like this is going to be costly and you feel it, right? It happens in your family. When certain folks share certain truths or certain people believe a certain way and you realize like if you stand on this biblical truth, it's going to maybe splinter your own family. But the trap is set for Jesus. Listen again to the question. Tell us then what you think. Remember they called him teacher, right? The the compliments that may appear there in verse 16 are actually backhanded, right? This is sarcasm. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here's the trap. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, what do you think the Romans are going to do to him? They're going to kill him. Right? That's just being an insurrectionist. Right? He's, he's denying that Caesar is emperor, Caesar is God, and so they are going to kill him. So they got a trap. The Romans are there. Right? The Romans are always around, looking, waiting, hearing things like this. The other trap is this. If he says yes Is it lawful to pay the taxes to Caesar or not? If he says yes, then all the Jewish people that are around him are absolutely going to be like, no way, dude, we're done with that guy. How could he ever give in to that culture and be willing to do that? He's in this this moment, right? We might call it simply a rock and what? A hard place. You ever been there? 
Felt like that maybe in your marriage? Felt like that maybe in relationships with family? Maybe you feel like that with job and decisions you've got to make with, with culture and different things that are happening? You ever just felt like you were just in some type of rock in a hard place? I mean, they've got Jesus in the ultimate trap. He, like, there's seemingly nowhere to go. They have thrown nets, and there's no chance, it seemingly, that he can escape that. But I think it's beautiful that, like, to see what he's going to do here. And I think it's a reminder to us uh, of this truth that kind of jumps forth in these next three or four verses or so. That Christ transforms culture through grace and truth. That Christ encounters the, go- the culture with the gospel. He doesn't run and hide from it. He's not going to call out a sledgehammer and start bashing. He's just simply going to bring the truth in grace. But he's going to encounter the culture. He's going to do it in a beautiful way. Because, he's again, he's in this moment. He's trapped. Man, might this moment just cause the church just to say, man, behold our God. Like, have you ever had those moments, like when somebody you love and appreciate, man, and they are like in a position like that seems like there's no way out? Right? Maybe they're in a competition or maybe they're in some type of something's happened in their life. It seems like there's no chance. And man, they come out and you're like, man, that's it. Yes, let's go. This is one of those moments for the church. This is our God. This is the ultimate sage of the day, so to speak. This is one that's wiser than Solomon. This is our King Jesus. Watch your Savior at work. Man, this is beautiful. Watch this. But Jesus, verse 18, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. The denarius was was a a pay for the day's wage. And Jesus says to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Now it's interesting, right? This coin has an image, right? Notice what he says there. Whose likeness and inscription is this? So we have a likeness on it. The emperor's head is on the coin. But there's also inscriptions on the coin. And and so historians tell us that there would be two, to the Jewish people, offensive inscriptions that were on this coin. One is this. It would say on one side, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Now consider that for a moment. Son of the divine Augustus. This is the son, the true divine son Jesus, the Son of God, holding a coin with another man's face on it, claiming to be the divine Son. But not only that, on the other side of the coin, if you flipped it over, it would say the words Pontifex Maximus. And we might interpret that as high priest. What's Caesar saying? Caesar's saying to the people, not only am I your political leader, I am also your spiritual leader. I'm the divine God. He's declaring to be God himself, calling to worship, right? This is significant. Why? Jesus is holding what we might say, this is blasphemous money in his hand. He's the son of God. He's the true high priest. I mean, surely here he might say to everyone, anyone that has any part of this money, that's treason against God. How could you even be a part of this culture? That's not his response, guys. It's, It's a moment of grace into us, into our fallen world, with our fallen rulers and our fallen powers. And it's a moment in which Jesus is just going to remind you and I that we live in a fallen world, but we must trust in our sovereign God. Listen to what he says. This is unbelievable. This statement, verse 21, right? It's one of those things like, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere, they're like, man, this is worth your price of admission. This is it. This simple statement for 2,000 years has been directing believers and the church of how to encounter Christ and culture. Listen to your Savior's words. So he says, whose likeness and inscriptions on this coin? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them this statement. Therefore, 
Render to Caesar the things that are what? And to God the things that are what? God's. What a moment, right? I mean, it's just this beautiful moment. Um, it's as Dr. Jonathan Pennington once said, I heard, Jesus in this moment both affirms and limits the government. And I think it's, it's just really wise. And I think we ought to just maybe just press into it for a moment again. This is Christ in culture. How does Christ transform culture? How does he interact with culture? And I think in the first moment, it's a moment of grace, yes, but it's also a moment of truth. Like if he brings the truth into this, he encounters the, the culture with truth. He says, I want you to know that, that government exists for a reason, for a purpose. But I want you to see that behind that, that there's a sovereign God who rules over all, who's in control of all. I mean, Paul echoes this similar statement of, of this type of, of thought in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Look at what he says here. Paul says to the church at Rome, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So again, Jesus says, Therefore, render to Caesar's that what is Caesar's, and to God that what is God's. Now look what he says here. Every person, right? So that means all of us here today. So this ought to clue you in that this is, hey, we all got to hear this. He says, every person here is to be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Look at his reasoning. Four, there is no authority except from whom? From God. And those that exist have been instituted by God, right? So this is God doing it. He's instituted. He's put in the governing authorities. That's Paul's reason to say why we should be subject to them, right? And immediately you might hear that and you begin to push back because you know about all kinds of evil governments, rulers, tyrants that have lived throughout history. You're asking about people like Hitler, like Stalin. I mean, you're beginning to think, how in the world is this possible that the Bible actually says that we should be subject to governing authorities? What about ungodly people like that? What about that? And I think that it's a reminder to us that God can accomplish his purpose even through evil men and evil governments. And in some mysterious way, guys, he's doing it right now. Even when we can't see it, even may we wonder, God, what's happening here? How is our culture looking like this? Guys, it's no surprise to God. He's in control. I mean, but at the same time, when we might begin to think about how evil governments are, let's remind ourselves also that governments can be good. I mean, if you've traveled other places and you come back here to the Estados Unidos, I am certain that you are thanking God for the roads that you get to drive on. I mean, you, you, you likely if you live here, you're thankful for schools. You may have some issues with certain things, but you're thankful that you live in a place where, guess what? Uh, Emily and I were having a conversation here recently with just some missionaries talking with them and said one of the biggest challenges they have is that the people there can't even afford to go to school. They can't afford to send their kids there. You, you live in a place where government helps provide health care. Food regulations. I mean, think about that for a moment. Think about the FDA, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I'm not a pharmacist. I'm not a chemist, right? I, I don't know how all these different medicines work. I just trust those that God's put in, in positions of authority, giving them knowledge that, guess what? When my kid's sick and that's what they need, I go and grab it. I don't start looking at the label thing and I wonder what this will do with this, with this, with this. I just give it. Why? Because I trust that there's people that have helped regulate that. If you walk into a restaurant recently, my assumption is you've been thankful that there's someone behind there that's helping regulate and give scores. Why? Because I, if you're like me, I'll just be honest with you. A lot of times I wonder, like, I wonder what's happening behind the counter. I wonder what's going on in there. Thank God that you live in a place where some of those things are regulated, right? 
So I think this truth of what Jesus is saying there, therefore render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and Paul saying let every person be subject to the governing authorities, is a reminder to us that it speaks against Christ against culture. We can't have that mentality. To, I think we say government is here because of God, not despite him. Thus, as Paul's going to tell you in Romans 13, we pay taxes, we do our best to submit to government guidelines. I think in saying that, right, again, I, I, I'm assuming that for some of you that creates a tension. I, I want to remind you as you wrestle with that, don't forget the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. Caesar is not open for election. There's no possibility that Jewish people can influence any kind of public policy. Those people, the Jewish people to whom Jesus speaks that day are heavily taxed and oppressed. My point is this. Jesus is speaking into a culture just like Paul and just like Peter that is much worse than anything we know here in the United States. And yet they're calling them to still be subject to governing authorities. So Jesus affirms the government, but at the same time, in his statement, he also limits them. Return back with me if you would. They said, again, this is why for 2,000 years the church has been wrestling with this statement. They said, Caesar's. And he says to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. He affirms the government, but then listen to this. And to God the things that are God. He limits the government in that statement. So we do, as the, the New Testament tells us, we pay taxes. Peter says we are to live quiet lives. But we also realize that the government is not our ultimate authority, right? I mean, Jesus says, and to God, the things that are God. There's a recognition that God's ultimate. He's in control. So while we're not looking to reject the culture and the government completely, we are not those who bow down to the culture and the government and no matter what they say. Instead, I think what Jesus is teaching us here is that we engage the culture with the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And I think that probably what arises in your heart and my heart, I'll just be honest as I wrestle with this text this week, is this question. When does the government's power end? My assumption is you've been wrestling with that question in many different ways. This very text causes us to wrestle with that question. When does the power of the government end? And to that, I would say this in response. The government's power ends when it infringes on the Christian's obedience to God. The government's, I'll say it again. The government's power ends when it infringes upon the Christian's obedience to God. And now you know the rub, don't you? I mean, you've been feeling that in the culture right now of where is that? And some folks think that line's here. Others think that line's here. You feel the tension. But let's just for a moment before we go there. Let's see this truth in action. It's in Acts chapter 4. The apostles are there, it, it's, and they're being put on trial. Listen to what happens in Acts chapter 4. It's, it's Peter and John, and they call them in. They charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This is the governing authorities, right? The ruling body of the Jewish people. And listen to their response. This is beautiful, verses 19 and 20 of Acts chapter 4. Again, as we try to understand what does it mean for government to be limited, how do we wrestle with, right, that... that when the moment that the government or ruling authorities infringe on the Christian's obedience, we reject that and we submit to God. So look, we're wrestling with that here in this text. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. He says, we acknowledge your authority. We hear what you're saying. We're not dismissing you. We're not just totally, we hear what you're saying. But let's just see what he says here. Four. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They said, listen, when the tension comes between the culture and the governing authorities and what God's word has clearly spoken, they said, we want you to know who we're going to bow to. 
We're bowing to our one King, Jesus. That's the answer that Jesus gives. That's the answer the apostles give. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we can't help speak about what we've seen and heard. We can't be quiet. This is our God and our King. Now listen, guys, I mean, this is a reminder that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. As we've been waking our way, like, I mean, let's just, just for a moment maybe wrestle with some of the tension in the room. Like, we've been wrestling with Christ and culture at a really intense rate for the last year or so, haven't we? I mean, just think about it just for our church for a moment, or churches around here. I mean, churches closing, mask or no mask, standing or sitting to sing, parking lot or inside. That's just a few of them, right? And let's be honest, have we not seen how quickly Christians can divide over these issues? I think Paul's words to us in Romans 14 have to be great wisdom, where Paul encourages the church there to model humility on areas of disagreement and not let it divide us. I want to encourage us in the midst of this to continually look to love our neighbor as ourselves. The truth is, let's be honest, this is not the first challenge that we are going to face, and nor will it be the last. There's more to come, and they will be more severe and more divisive and more challenging. Beloved, we must be ready. And I think it's important that the church shows the culture around it that even when we disagree, we can still love one another. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. I guess I'll come to it at the end. But I want to encourage you, right? As you disagree with people in the church, as you disagree with people in your family, as you disagree with people at your job site, as you disagree with people on social media, I want to encourage us to remember that our ultimate goal is not to win an argument. It's to win people to Jesus. Let that be what drives our heart, right? It doesn't mean we don't... Jesus speaks truth, guys. He does. He affirms the government but limits it, right? He's, he's, he's in this trap of a question. It's a beautiful moment. But I, I want to remind us, guys, again, this, this COVID season and all the tension that it's brought, it's not going to be the last. This is not, though, the first time in church history believers have faced major challenges recently emily and i were watching with our kids one of the episodes of Torchlighters. right i don't know if you've, you've done that with your kiddos i want to encourage you they're available in different streaming things again the, the torch like you would carry a light torch lighters they just they have like little cartoon animated things about different church people in history and what they've done and so one of those was richard warmbrand um, for adults in the room and those more mature it's it's very intense that they have an adult one called tortured for christ all right there's even books on it he writes and shares about his, his, his story. Uh, Richard Warmbrand was a Romanian pastor in 1948 um, when communism began to take over and was flooding through. And he and his wife were both in prison for the gospel. He experiences, it's hard to even describe the beatings that he experiences, the things he goes through. In an effort to try to get him to break, they take his wife, put her in a concentration camp, put her through all kinds of just horrific things. All of this began with when the communists came in and they were trying to help they were trying to help the church and the communist government come together. And so they had this event where they brought religious leaders together, pastors like Richard Warmbrand came, and, and they were gonna say, Hey, listen, we want to show the churches throughout Romania that the communist government and the church can work together. And so Richard Warmbrand was one of the most well known pastors throughout Romania, and so they brought him in to speak. And the moment before he goes to speak, he writes in his autobiography, his wife, Sabina, says these words to him. Listen to this, what she writes. Richard, 
stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They're spitting in his face. I said to her, if I do so, you lose your husband. So it cost him. He knows it. She replied, listen to this. I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. So Richard Wormbrand will walk to a podium with all the communist government around and pastoral leaders and began to speak the truth about who Christ is and they must hold fast to these blessed scriptures. It will cost him. It will cost his wife. It will cost his son. It will cost all those who hold fast. And I want you to know, beloved, that if you hold fast to these scriptures, it will cost you and it may already be. Hold fast. Our king is on his throne and he's coming again. You do not want to be ashamed in that hour. Hear me clearly today. You do not want to be ashamed at his coming. Hold fast to these blessed and only scriptures. With all that's in me, I say it to you today. Richard Wombrand says it today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it to us today. Christ the King says it to us today. Hold fast. So ask, hearing the words of Miss Sabina Wombrand, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. Might I ask you, how have you or how are you standing up for Christ in this culture? Might it be being a voice for the unborn? Might it be right now to be a voice for Sunrise Children's Homes as they defend their religious liberty and freedom they have given to them by the Constitution upon which this nation was founded to affirm that we believe because the Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman and that's what's best for children to be adopted into? Might you be a voice and not cower in the darkness? Might we be a voice when we see discrimination based upon the face, color, of one's body and skin? Might we be as believers a voice that stands up and says that's not right, that's not okay? For some of you it means you're going to be a voice in private areas in your home having conversations that are hard about gender and sexuality and marriage. Speaking truth that hell is a real place just as Jesus said. Speaking this truth, I want to ask you today, believer in love, and I want to ask my own soul because I have a weakness here too. Are we shying away from conversations? It's just, it's just feet to the fire for a moment. Me and you both, right? Because I, I, I can be a scaredy cat as well. I'll just be straight up with you. It's really hard, especially with family. It's really hard. Are we shying away from conversations? Again, this doesn't mean we come in with our wrecking ball. This is not that. This is coming in grace and truth as our Savior shows us. And we might ask, well, what will be the response of these religious leaders to hearing this great wisdom and truth? And I think this is what comes about is this. A culture that claps for Jesus but doesn't bow to Jesus doesn't know Jesus. A culture that claps for Jesus but refuses to bow to Jesus doesn't know Jesus. I know it's a mouthful. I even try to rewrite it sometimes, but I just... I think it fits what we see here in this last verse of Matthew 22 in this section. Look what happens here. He says to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. Some translations say amazed. They're amazed. They had him in a trap. How did, he get, like, how did he get out of it? But then listen to this statement. This is what's so horrifying about all of this. 
This is what terrifies me about the then of verse 15 after they heard all this truth about hell and heaven and how to be saved by the Son and they reject it. The very same thing. He's speaking truth. Look what happens. When they heard it, they marveled and they left Him and went away. They refused to believe. Biblical scholar Matthew Henry says these words. You expect to read, they were amazed and submitted to Him. That's what you expect to read. You expect to read, they were amazed and followed him. But what we read is, they were amazed or they marveled and they what, church? They went away. They left him. I think it's a reminder to us to be amazed by Jesus is not enough. Jesus isn't after our amazement. He is after our hearts. Amazement comes and goes. Like I, You probably had a point when you were amazed with a new car or a new whatever, right? And guess what happens? It gets old or has a few problems. There's probably moments when you were amazed by that new, right? And you may have been like Lone Star singing, I'm amazed by you, baby, right? But guess what? After long, you start to figure out they got some annoying habits and annoying problems and they got some issues just like you do. The reality is why my point is amazement comes and goes. We're amazed. And if you look around the culture, there's times when people are amazed by Jesus. They're clapping for him. They're testifying for him. They're coming forward. They might even be baptized. Then you look out today and say, where are they? Where are they going? They seem so amazed for a moment. And where are they? Might it remind us as believers that are here today that God is after more than our singing of songs. He's after more than our giving of money. He's after more than our serving. Guys, he's after our hearts. Might we just ask if this is true about us? Do we show up on Sundays and then leave him and go away Monday through Saturday? Man. Might we hear fresh and new? Back to the first parable they told the two sons, and he says that the prostitutes and tax collectors are going to the kingdom before you. And then he says to them in verse 32, Yet afterward you do not change your mind and believe. Guys, that's the opportunity today to hear this. So many people are impressed by Jesus that he's a good person, that he's kind of the poor, that he's sick, that he's a really wise man that had a lot of great sayings. They're admiring him from a distance. They're amazed by him at a distance. Guys, this gospel calls us not simply to be amazed, but to bow and worship. He's the king. He is the divine son. Caesar's son is not. He doesn't live in the White House. He lives in God's house. He's the king of all kings. You can't trap him either. To the unbeliever here today who thinks that you will baffle God with your questions, that you will get away at the throne because you have some insight or some loophole in the scriptures that you've found that God can't touch you, your sin and my sin will condemn us to hell on that day. You sang it this morning. He is holy what? Holy, holy. He's unlike us. And because he's holy, 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 no one will enter his presence unless they have been forgiven and redeemed, been washed by the blood. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? You sang it this morning, are they? Have you been forgiven? Have you come under the blood of Christ? After hearing this truth today, are you willing to follow the example of tax collectors and prostitutes who would change their mind and believe? Or will you puff out your chest and throw it over and say, I'm just good the way I am? I want you to hear Jesus say that on that day the king will come and bind you or me or whomever rejects the son hand and foot and throw us into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
There is one way to be rescued from the judgment and wrath of God, and it is to repent and believe upon the Son. And I pray for the conviction of God to say that no matter what may come, for me or my family or for you and your family. I pray that we will never shy away from that truth. To the church today, wow, how much could we say about this in application and closing? I want to say a couple things. One is... um, it's important for individuals and families to be connected to the church. As Mark spoke last week to the graduates, and I want to encourage you, have a plan. Some of you, right, as you think about you're getting ready to, to be married soon or step out of the house soon, right? Some of you are trying to plan what your family looks like as you, you have kids or some of you as you head in toward retirement. I just want to compel you today, anchor your soul hearing the word of God and being connected to the local church. You've got to be, guys, because the culture is going to rail against you with every bit of ferocity it has. And your children and my children and my soul and your soul are going to be weak. It's hard to stand out there. So we must continually gather together, believers, hearing this word. We must bring our children to continually hear this only gospel. We must. For some of you, this is a reminder that you are going to be on job sites and you're going to have to deal with the question, how do you render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's? And I want to just continually remind us all that the government's power ends when it infringes upon the Christian's obedience to God. And I think there brings the rub, doesn't it? Is it in this room, some of you right now may be divided with somebody else over things that happened six months ago or a year ago, possibly long even beyond that, but just in reality of thinking about COVID. And so here's what I might say in response to so much division that's happened in our culture and maybe even within our church. I think it's wise that we look back last week to hear Mark talking to us from the Gospel of Mark. I thought about that this week, like, teacher's pet, Mark and Mark. Of course he was. But he was in Mark 16 last week. And after the resurrection, the angel tells the ladies there, go tell the disciples and who? And Peter. Peter who's denied him three times? Yes, that Peter. I want him back. Why? Because you upon you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Yes, you, despite all your failures, despite all your mess ups, despite the fact that you denied me in my hour of greatest need. I want that Peter back. You see, beloved, that's grace and forgiveness and mercy and truth that's what we must show in this room to one another so i don't know who you're harboring bitterness with i want to compel you to seek reconciliation why because that's what god sought with you through jesus christ and then it gets beyond that right some of you've got division with people in your families and it's hard i want to compel you as far as it depends upon you doesn't mean that it always works out But as far as it depends upon you, I want to compel you and I to go and seek reconciliation. Right? I mean, because let's be honest, we've been divided with people. You're upset, right, about different people. You feel like some people have caved into the government. You feel like other people feel like you didn't respect the government. Like there's just, I mean, can you imagine that? The division that can happen so quickly? Let Jesus' example be the model for this church and for our lives to seek reconciliation for those that we're divided with. And to realize that we may disagree at times on how we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and God the things that are God's. Lastly, I might just compel you to pray. Pray for wisdom for pastors and church leaders, not only in this church, but man, throughout this community and throughout the nations. It is hard. 
and to battle that and to weigh that, how you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and God the things that are God's and those who think you're giving in on this side and those who think you're giving in on that side. I told Brother Todd, it's like sometimes I just feel like it's Thanksgiving. I just want my family to come together. Can we all come to the table, please? I know we're upset. I know we disagree, but we are a family and families stick together. So I want to compel you not only in the church, beloved, I'm talking about your own families as well. I'm talking about maybe at your job site. It's been messy or maybe it's somebody you've tangled with in social media and you're just like, I can't stand them. Might we just seek reconciliation? As far as it depends on us, that doesn't mean we can't have, it's just reality. Some folks are unwilling, but man, might we just pray and seek reconciliation and do our best to walk according to Christ's truths. Let us hold fast to the scriptures. Let's pray, church. Father, thank you for King Jesus. Thank you that he's my God. Because, Lord, sometimes I feel like such a dummy and I can't figure out how to do things or what's the best way or the wisest way. I just thank you that I can look to you and say, man, he covers all of my imperfections and weaknesses. Father, I just pray that your people today are just resting in grace. I pray that they are trusting in what their Savior has done for them. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that, as we sang this morning, your mercies are new every morning. Thank you, God, for forgiveness and grace. Father, I pray now for those in this room who have not repented and believed. I pray that hearing this truth today, they will turn from their sinful ways and turn to Christ. Father, strengthen this church to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. I pray for forgiveness in families, forgiveness in relationships on our jobs. Just forgiveness with people in the community maybe that we become at odds with. Please, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit today, help us seek reconciliation. Strengthen us, God, to know the line to hold and how to hold it in grace and truth. Let us not be cowards. Let us realize that ultimately, God, we bow only unto you. Strengthen us, Father. Unify our church. Unify the churches of Green County. Strengthen our families. Help us show grace and mercy in this community, Lord, to reach the lost for the name of our King Jesus. In his name we pray and all God's people said.